patrons, welcome to another Aufe Bunga Bunga Reading Club. It's Thursday, the 1st of July. This is Alex Hochuli. I'm here with uh, Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare, and we're all in a really bitchy mood. Uh, we've just spent the warm-up to this, just completely bitching at each other. Now we're going to try to pretend we all get along and are on the same page about a book that uh, we evidently aren't. So uh, with that said, I'm going to pass over to Phil because it's his uh, episode this week, or this month rather. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for that delightful introduction. Also, they, they were complaining about me being too academic, so I'm going to try and show them, like, share this like uh, like a proper seminar. Um, no, that was a joke. So um, we're not like in the same academic place. academic joke. Yeah, very academic joke. It's true. That was lame. Okay. I'll, I will accept that was lame. Generally, my humor is much better than the other two, but on that occasion, it was... Um, it was subpar, and I apologise to the listeners. I think, I think if you have to say that, it maybe undermines your point. But let's let's um, we have a lot to discuss. Listen, I'm think... the funny guy here, <laughs> guys. Anyway, go on, go on. Anyway, anyway, we're not all in the same place though. Alex is still in the UK, but we are based in our um, respective locations at the moment, um, and we're here to talk about Michael Lint's The New Class War: Saving Democracy from the Metropolitan Elite. Michael Lint is an American constitutional theorist, um, professor, academic. Um, the book was published by Atlantic Books, and it came out in 2020. So it's um, very much of the moment. Um, I wanted to explain a bit why Michael Lint was chosen. So George, in fact, read it first. Um, but I thought it would be good to read once I read it. Um, I thought it would be good to read for the podcast because I think it's on... It's on many of the things that we've been talking about for a while um, in terms of the political instability that's come in the wake of the global financial crash, the failures and I suppose the crumbling away of um, political neoliberalism as a particular kind of order. It's squarely set on the Western world, the advanced democracies, um, uh, the US, obviously, uh, Western Europe, Australia, Japan and so on. Um, and that it is unabashedly, unashamedly pro-democratic. It puts the interests of the majority um, and the attempt to, it seeks to reconstruct a, a, a universalistic, at least on its own terms, and majoritarian concept of politics against the, the narrow, technocratic, neoliberal and identity-based forms of politics that it, identi you know, that it uh, criticizes. Um, but it comes from someone who is also a self-described Michael Lint. Is a, he's a Catholic social theorist, um, a self-avowed, I mean, a very kind of forceful, a self-avowed Democrat and also a self-avowed nationalist. He's a critic of Trump, um, but was obviously sympathetic to some of the political um, demands that Trumpism embodied. And I think all of that makes it very interesting. And in particular, that um, it's a Catholic social theorist, a self-avowed nationalist who is so strongly framing their politics in terms of a class struggle and even a class war as the title of the book goes. So these are some of the reasons I wanted to read it. And, in, and on top of which I thought it was very good. Um, and I think that, that alone makes it worth reading. So what did you think, George? Well, I mean, the way that you presented it, it made it sound like I'd read it and then you read it and you were like, I've got this great idea, actually, let's do it on the reading club. Um, well, no, but, but I was, there wasn't, I mean, the point is you read it before me, but you didn't propose it for the read for the reading mm, club. Mm, so. We can agree to disagree on that, on that point of, of, of history. Um, but no, I thought it, I, I, I read it, you know, in I think in like two sittings or something and really 
enjoyed it. I thought it was a, I'm not sure I quite agree with some of the, the description that you, that you gave. And I think when we can get into um, the solution that he proposes, I think it was, it really made me think. And I, I have to say, I think the diagnosis makes kind you think of, hashtag. Uh, is that a hashtag? Um, well, yeah, it did. It makes made, made me think, forced me to think. Um, but the diagnosis, the, I thought the setup was brilliant. And I think that's, you know, to, to see, to read a kind of a playing back of the, in such a short condensed form, a playing back of the politics of the past, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, I thought it was brilliant. So yeah, I, I, um, I'm looking forward to discussing it with the two of you. I thought we were all going to be on the same page and it was all going to be like, oh, this is actually going to be kind of boring because we all think it's so good, but we, we don't. We have a we have a dissenter who. Needs I mean, I, to Alex, out. Alex is in the minority here, standing against the majority. So the Menshevik, yeah, go for you know, it. The mm. Remainer, the woke tard in the room. So go on, Alex. Tell us, tell us why Whoa. democracy no. is bad. You you guys are uh, eulogizing a book that is in favor of class peace and buying class peace at all costs, uh, and I am critical of the book for that. Um, it's called a new class war, and it's an argument for diffusing class war. Now. I think that the book is it's it's reading and understanding of the political conflicts of today is more or less spot on. Uh, and in that regard, it, we tread a lot of similar ground. Like in our book, um, I think we do it better. But you know, um, similar similar sort of ground. I think he's you know correct in his diagnosis of populism as a symptom um, of of the problems today. But ultimately, his argument is a conservative one, as you'd expect. I mean, I'm not outraged by that as if I, I was expecting something different. Um, but it's a fairly conformist social vision uh, and, in, and a desire to return to a past, which I don't think is possible. And so that's where I find the limitations are. So basically, I thought it's either correct, but not that interesting for me, maybe because I'm just too too close to these things we've been discussing it's for a long know, time. You know everything. A, it's yeah, because you're such a great genius. No, but we, it's, it's things we've been discussing. So to have it replayed back to me is not so interesting and enlivening. Um, and then there was other stuff which I found more interesting, but which I disagreed with. So that that was my take. Yeah, no, I think I think your, your point about the overall political project and the idea of class peace, that's definitely something we need to, we need to get into. Yeah, I, I, mean, think, so... I think that's what makes it contradictory. And I think it will fail on its own terms for that I reason. But anyway, that's, that's, I suppose let's go. What the, what, I mean, Alex raises an interesting point, despite so, and this is goes to show why, you know, even though um, he's in the minority, that, um, you know, like we should nonetheless listen to and respect his opinion. <laughs> but the, um, we should we should censor his voice. <laughs> we should cancel him. You're, you're the in podcast. the you're in the peasant majority, and I'm in the proletarian minority. That's what's happening here. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Anyway, um, I suppose what's interesting to me is the fact that the um, that you have a conservative or centre-right, I mean, you know, conservative Catholic kind of social theorist, nationalist, Democrat, whatever, um, who is so unabashedly talks about class war as the defining phenomenon of our time without qualification. So not as, you know, kind of that, um, you know, not uh, that... Um, that it's racialized capitalism um, with, you know, patriarchy on top and uh, I don't know, whatever else, which is always the way that the left kind of qualifies it and inter in intersectional terms, essentially. And um, he very clearly doesn't. And so, and I think that 
I think that touches on what Alex was suggesting. I mean, I think it's important and interesting in itself that the, you know, this kind of language that once would have been associated very openly and straightforwardly with a kind of um, a robust kind of rambunctious, even kind of uh, social left, social democrat or socialist of the 1960s or 70s has been adopted um, by a different political position. And I think that is important and worth, and we'll come back to it. Anyway, so um, in the book, Lint talks basically the framing, the historical framing, his narrative of how we got to where we are is um, 20th, 20th century and 21st century, begins with the end of the Second World War and the political, in the US in particular, the, politi the politi politics and society that emerges from that. And in his model, you have the Cold War um, followed by class war as he puts it. So base the, um, that you have this kind of um, uh, the Cold War, this era of uh, social integration and relative political um, harmony, I suppose, by his own, in his own terms. Um, and a, a, a society within which the American working class had a role and a place, both politically, socially, and economically. And that society functioned more or less effectively um, in an integrated and synthesized way. And this is restructured at the end of the Cold War, and you get the emergence of this phenomenon of what he calls class war. So I suppose what I thought, the first thing that struck me was, what are the differences? So, I mean, you know, it's a similar, it's a kind of, it's a way to describe that period, and there are other ways to describe it. So other ways in which people have described it, you know, social democracy or the welfare state followed by neoliberalism, or others in terms of economic policy, Keynesianism um, followed up by neoliberalism or monetarism. So I, what's, is there any difference in framing it, or what is the difference in framing that period in these different ways? Yeah. So just a just a first first thing to say that it's Michael Lind with a D, not Michael Lint with a with a D T. You're kind of chocolatizing him because there is a famous brand because of chocolate sweet. called Lint because he's sweet. sweet. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to throw that in because it's a final opportunity for someone else mispronouncing something that I get to. I get to correct. Um, but yeah, no, just to, just to go over that, that like the basic model. So his, his, his sort of starting point is that that first class war. So he, he frames it all in terms of the managerial overclass. And he says that this first class war between the managerial overclass and the working class ended after um, 1945 with national class compromises. And this is where he sort of sees this golden age of democratic pluralism as collective bargaining. Um, and then he runs through, and we can maybe talk about this a bit later, but this this neoliberal dismantlement of that class compromise, what he calls the neoliberal revolution from above, that kind of 1970s to present uh, landslide, as Eric Hobsbawm put it, where all of these kind of these these fixed um, uh, foundations for a period of you know American Western European prosperity get um, get kind of shredded. It's called, actually, I think you'll find it's pronounced Hobsbawm, George. Well, I, you know, again, I, I gained a little and then I lost a little. I was up up for a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I found his whole um, sort of periodization a little bit iffy, like as, as it pertains to the recent period of, you know, the shift from social democracy to neoliberalism or Keynesianism uh, to monetarism and so on. That's fair enough. The, the Cold War to class war is kind of I, I mean those, i think they're bad labels because um 
the class war, I mean, obviously it's a class war from above, and I think he recognizes that. But in terms of a class war from below, you know, the Cold War saw more class war from below than the post-Cold War period. So it's just rather strange to call the post-Cold War period a period of class war. Um, yeah, I and mean, I guess the other element of it is that the you know the neoliberal revolution from above was precisely justified by uh, excess of class war, by unions being too um, you know unions being uh, too greedy, um, too powerful, who rules as Thatcher put it um, in squaring up against the miners, the miners union brought down a government in Britain. You know, so, I mean, it was justified by too much class war. Let's have some class peace was the way in which it's justified. And he doesn't really, he doesn't talk about that. And there were, you know, there are equivalent kind of levels of industrial militancy in the US um, in the 70s. Um, so I guess the point is the, the contrast between the two is very sharp. And I think that, you know, for the purpose of his present, you know, maybe he gets carried away, but and for the purposes of his presentation, but it ends up undermining any kind of analytic point because he's unable to explain how one really emerges, unfolds into the other. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I wouldn't get too hung up on this Cold War followed by class war because, I mean, that's not really what he's saying. He's really saying class war followed by class war. And that's what, what's happened because he does say, you know that the period of the neoliberal period 1970s to the present which was obviously during the period of the cold war that this was um an anti you know it's a neoliberal revolution from above and that is obviously a sort of class war and that's obviously you know the weakening of the nation state and the power of working class majorities by this kind of apolitical government anti-majoritarian and technocratic synthesis between the libertarian right yep. and the cultural left it is you know and he and he, he notes I, that and he and he goes through it so i think it's the, you know it's just a throwaway point, line cold point, war followed by class my, war i my think my point my point was that you have um genuinely you know genuinely um sharp and bitter class conflict in the period from the 1940s to the 1970s so it's not as if you have this, um, you know, there is, it is kind of conducted in a framework bound up within a kind of particular social democratic Keynesian, whatever you want to call it, vision of the nation state. But you do have very sharp conflict between different groups, classes, not least. Um, it's not a period of um, harmony, which is then followed by this kind of um, ruthless neoliberal revolution from above, which suddenly comes from nowhere. I mean, it comes in response precisely to lay to the militancy of organized labor in the 1970s yeah yeah and i think there's some other kind of slippages or, or weird sort of periodizations which is not just an academic question but i think it, it leads to sort of a fuzzy picture of what's happened and so one of the ways that he talks about it he, he mentions the way that the historic compromise uh of the the immediate post-cold po excuse me post-war post-second world war period um was a period of, uh, you know, if it's kind of saying of class peace after uh, the managerial elite had been defeated. But he uses that same term managerial elite to talk about the bourgeoisie across different periods, which then makes his argument lose a little bit of force. That's right, Alex. What He's it, not a Marxist. No, but his point, his point is that, you know, the, the managerial elite is a, is a recent thing, right? And that's a, a, at the root of our current problems, but then projects the managerial elite backwards into the kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, where it might not be the most adequate way of describing that. So, yeah, but I mean, he's, but he's, I mean, 
he's talking, I think, I mean, from the American point of view, at least, and he talks about this. I mean, he says, you know, I mean, there is a, a conflict um, between progressives and populists, and you do get the emergence of a certain kind of um, technocracy with the emergent, and, um, you know, that begins with, uh, under Teddy Roosevelt and others, it's a particular kind of American state begins to emerge in opposition to the um, agrarian populism and the urban and the kind of growing uh, the growing challenge posed by an urban industrial working class in the first part of the 20th century in the US. But it might, I mean, you know, I accept the point that it perhaps doesn't, um, it's maybe not so easily transplanted into other, into other contexts. Anyway, let's move on because so we've been talking about classes. What are the classes um, that Lynn talks about? And also I want to, so, I mean, he mentions, I mean, cause so we've already mentioned one of them, which is this kind of managerial overclass as he puts it. Um, the working class, as he, as he also talks about them, those two groups. Um, and also, what are the major battle lines? So one of them is this hub and hardland model, as he calls it. And this is based on, um, I mean, it's kind of very clearly inspired by the US, but I, he makes the point that it applies elsewhere as well. So you have the east, kind of the, um, the urban areas of the east, of east coast and west coast, and then kind of fly over country. So you have the hubs and the hardlands. Hub hardlands is... Um, you know, the uh, flyover country, as you say, and the hubs are the financial centers and centers of political and economic power. And he quotes William Jennings Bryan, the the great kind of populist um, challenger of the early 20th century, who says that if you burned the hubs, if you burned the cities of the US to the ground, they would spring back the next day because the economic, the underlying kind of economic and social basis for those cities was the heartland. Whereas if you burn the heartland to the ground, the cities would never rise because they would have no basis on which to build. The point being that they couldn't, that the hub, the hubs, the um, those centers of economic power on the East Coast in particular back then, but on the West Coast too, couldn't take the heartlands for granted, that they needed the heartlands to function. They couldn't look down their noses at them. They couldn't abuse them and oppress them. And that they both need to, they both rely on each other in order to function. And he says, "Is, is there a is there, sorry? Is there a question here no, <laughs> that you're asking us? I'm not asking just, you a question. I'm kind of, trying to explain the book to our listeners. A, all right, because you asked you asked a question at the beginning, and then you kind of answered it. Yes, yeah, so you did it again. Yeah, just let yeah. us know when you want us to um yeah, to come worry, in. Don't That's worry. Fine. I'll bring you in when I feel that it's warranted. So you don't. Need I mean, that that might be not at all. You can you can I just think I um, was doing, soliloquy I think I was, it if you want. I was think I was doing quite well. Yeah. And this hub and hardland model um, can be applied elsewhere um, as well. The UK is kind of an obvious example at the moment. I mean, while we're talking, there is. Um, uh, a by-election in a so-called red wall district in the UK. Um, former a labor former labor stronghold that looks like it might be captured by the Tories. So you have that kind of heartland area outside of the urban hub of the southeast, and a similar thing in France is picked up by um, the um, by the French geographer Christophe Guilly, who we also discussed on the podcast. So um, I think it. I mean, I think the model, the idea of hubs and hardlands, it works. I guess he doesn't. I don't think he really explains. They've always, I mean, according to his, according to his story, they've kind of always been there in the US. I'm not quite sure they, um, I'm not quite sure. I think that kind of geographic separation is something which is more recent in Western European states, mm. particularly in France and the UK and perhaps elsewhere as well. But I suppose I wanted to ask this question again is um, the William Jennings Bryan thing. So if you, 
if you burn down the heartlands in places like France and the UK, um, would the cities shrivel and wither? Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly how to go about answering that, though. I, I think so I mean, the question one, I one thing, what, just, just to deal with the thing just before that was, um, you know, the, the cities were always seen as a great conurbations of the working class, right? Um, that, that's where the that's where the working class was in the in the big cities. Yeah. Um, and obviously there has been a transformation. Um, I think one thing I learned is that the U.S. when they talk about rural in the U.S., I think for us in Britain, rural would mean like proper countryside and small villages, right? In the U.S., con- rural means basically small towns, but even you know cities of like a hundred thousand. Um, if they're outside of the major metro areas, they're considered uh, rural. So yeah. It's so, the same so, thing. I mean, in the UK, I think in a sense, like what, you know, the the language doesn't precisely express what's being talked about, because what we really mean is kind of rings of suburbs and kind of, you know, um, towns that are on the edges of large cities, kind of exurban places and um, small, small and mid-sized towns, essentially, in cities, you know, yeah, it's not yeah. it's not like small villages. And so I think that language, it's true, you know, to say rural, when we're talking about, say, the, you know, rural Brexit vote or whatever, what you're really talking about is small and medium-sized towns. You're not talking about kind of um, remote hamlets in God knows where, you know. And not farmers or people working in agriculture. It's yeah, industrial, absolutely. industrial cities, but small cities often. Um, sure. So, but I guess the point so, being like the, you know, that the, they think people who live in the in the hubs imagine themselves as this kind of you know network of more or less independent city states connected you know london connected to paris to new york to tokyo to singapore whatever um completely oblivious to the fact that ultimately they can only function because they have a hard land, you know, and that if they, yeah. if, where they get food from, where... Well, the distribution centers and logistics, yeah, just exactly. one Distrib- sector, yes. which is essential. Labor, uh, food, energy, you know, all of these things they still depend on. And if they took them from much further abroad, from far less kind of, um, you know, the the it would be far more economically and politically, geopolitically difficult to, um, to be able to function if they were, if those hard lands weren't so close. And so I suppose it seems to me that the answer would be yes. I mean, the um, the hubs, uh, it is illusory, right? Their sense of their kind of separation from these um, the backwaters that they look down upon. Um, yeah, I mean, so just, I mean, I think in some ways this, the way you framed it is missing the point. Um, really what he's saying is that this is not a, as it's often understood to be, a cultural divide. I mean, it's a it's a class divide, and that's I think one of the consistent things that he that he brings out in in his I guess sociological analysis is that this is a this is a class division, this hub and heartland model, and it's often thought of in terms of kind of somewheres and anywheres, for example, which is kind of a, a to do with social mobility and, and well, kind of David, cultural that's lens. David Goodhart's model in the UK specifically, indeed, indeed, and I think he's you know that's what he's trying or what I interpreted him as trying to do. With this hub and heartland model is to say there is a geographical way in which um class divisions play out today which is you know in some ways hardly a uh, an, an a surprising point but if you think about the way that like oh it's about rural attitudes and and left behind communities and all of these kind of like what do you think what you know let's go out and find out what these people think in like outside of our metropolitan areas well actually in, in some ways it's quite a lot more simple than that it's just a class division and that's how it's playing out 
um, geographically. But it, but I mean, I guess the question is, is it? Because I don't know if it's so clear cut. You referenced Christophe Julie. So we've talked about this book uh, in a reading club already two years ago or something. And he's a little bit more sophisticated in addressing this because, I mean, he talks about how the cities are composed of a lot of workers, a lot of the working class, but it's often uh, immigrant or, or uh, kind of maybe second or third generation um, people who aren't, you know, born in the country, but, uh, you know, with uh, ancestors from from abroad, uh, who are often low wage service sector workers. And so that's a, a sizable chunk of the working class, too. And I think to paint it clear, just as a sort of, if you live in a city of 100,000, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, it's all working class, and everybody who's in the large city no, is, but that's, is, but that's uh, not, that's, that's not his, that's not his point. His, I mean, I, I, his, his, his interest is like, who are this, who is this managerial overclass and, and they all live in cities. And I think that's his point. But like, it's not just cities. I don't, cities isn't right. That's, that's important to say. Urban, it's major urban, urban centers, like, and yeah. often global cities, you know, if you're talking about London and Paris, absolutely. Yeah. But, but there's an extraordinary is, concentration of that Rabbit. group that he sees as replaced the bourgeoisie. And a succeeded old-fashioned bourgeois capitalists as a dominant elite, and they're I, very geographically concentrated. You might and agree with that or not? Cities. That's, that's I agree with point. that. I agree with that. I just I don't agree with the other side of the picture that the working class is therefore just in small towns. You know, that's that's I think a, no, a misleading. I don't, I, yeah, no, that's I don't not. Think I don't think that's that his point. A, I think it's the point about where kind of. Um, the way in which the conflict is understood between these different geographic areas um, represents, as George says, kind of a class difference. It's not to say there are no kind of poor people in major urban areas. There are. Um, but just that it doesn't, you know, the people who dominate, politically dominate those urban areas are not um, poor kind of working class immigrant communities. Yeah, I guess how much of this might change? Because one thing that people have talked about is as a result of COVID um, and kind of greater technological capacity to work from home, that you're having the kind of uh, managerial overclass kind of leeching out um, as they kind of buy up areas um, in on the outskirts of cities and outside places, of the major cities. Places like Kent in the UK. Indeed. They go down to kind of Canterbury. DFLs, or... as they're called down in Kent, down downs from, down from London's. Um, and driving up kind of property prices, but they're being colonized essentially by people who are benefiting from inflated property prices in the urban centers. But then, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, that geography looks very different, right? In terms of who's left in the urban cores and the geography of the exurban areas, the outlying areas, the smaller towns and cities, it looks far more, it looks, you know, it's a much more kind of complicated patchwork quilt. And what that looks like and, you know, who knows, I mean, how that might, um, you know, end up looking. Anyway, I wanted to talk about this managerial overclass. So it's an odd, I always thought it's an odd framing to talk about this kind of, to talk about them as an overclass, because I'm not quite sure why he does it. So he's talking about, you know, I guess what we've talked about here is the professional managerial class, the PMC, but you could talk about them as, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, um, professional elites, upper middle class. I mean, there's all, you know, all sorts of different ways you could. But he also, yeah, and he also means Hold owners on. of capital, right? Well, that's not clear to me because so, you know, if I wanted to say overclass, it seems to me that would be somebody, you know, like people with, um, you know, Musk or Bezos or Bill Gates. I mean, people who's whose wealth and power is so kind of um, extraordinary uh, compared to um, the rest of the population, um, you know, that seems, overclass seems more appropriate for those, you know, a very small kind of group of people. 
whereas overclass to describe a broad swathe of um, you know highly credentialized people, some of whose wealth is totally bound up in housing, um, you know, however snobby and um, elitist and um, their politics and their outlook might be, to call them an overclass seems to me to be stretching the point. No, hmm. I mean, I think this I, is one of the. Sorry, go on, Alex. I, 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 that's my problem with it as well. And part of the problem with a lot of the PMC discussion is just a little bit of lack of clarity. Whether you're talking about the people who really run society or the people who have a lot of influence in society, and it's a much broader, broader sway. Are you talking about the top? 0.1% or are you talking about the top 10% or the top 30%, you know? And I think one one of the ways that this comes across here is that you've got the old term bourgeois, right? Bourgeois, not in a Marxist sense, meaning owners of capital, but bourgeois meaning quite literally the people of the city and basically the well-to-do, which includes what would be today professionals as well as owners of capital, right? The, bourge the bourgeois meaning, uh, you know, the traditional well-to-do, right? Um, as a broad swathe. And if you're talking about you're using managerial overclass to describe that broad swathe, um, which includes everything from Jeff Bezos to, uh, you know, a junior academic or whatever, right? Um, is uh, it fine. I think that's fine to describe that as, you know, the bourgeoisie or to use a different term for it. But I agree with Phil, calling it an overclass tends to kind of blur the difference between precisely, you know, massive, inequalities within that group and inequalities, not just of uh, income, but of wealth and of power and of influence. So he says, yeah, so this I, is, so he says, sorry, I just want to, sorry, George, if on. I just read out the, so he says, um, no more than 10 or 15% of the population. This is Lint talking no more than 10 or 15% of the population in a typical Western nation, a small minority, though considerably larger than the much discussed 1%. This credentialed over class owns roughly half the wealth in the United States, with the refs divided between the super rich and the bottom 90%. That's page seven in the book. Um, so, yeah, the um, membership in college-educated managerial classes. So the college education, the credentialization is very important to this group's um, status and identity, according to Lint. Um, and it's also the... Um, a way, well, yeah, I mean, that's it, but 10 to 15 percent. And yeah. I guess it's upper management rather than kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of a hipster living in a one bedroom apartment um, in, yeah. you know, kind of desperately kind of making ends meet. I mean, I don't think he's talking about that. Group. So I think I think this is one of this is a really important question. And I'm not sure personally, I've sort of fully made my mind up on it. And that's how what is the kind of political significance and is, I mean, is this group a class? So he his I think one of the most striking claims that he makes is like this, essentially his reading of 20th century history is, is about to, to a large extent, the actions of this group of people. He says the post-war system has been dismantled in a revolution from above that has promoted the material interests and intangible values of the college educated minority of managers and professionals who have succeeded old fashioned bourgeois capitalists as a dominant elite. So he's saying quite unequivocally, this is the group who hold um, cultural, political um, and economic power. Um, and yeah, as you said, Phil, for 10, 15 percent of the population, it might be slightly different in different countries, depending on how the education system functions. But there are some important aspects of this of this group um, that he goes through, which, you know, may do lean to, do make you think this is a this is a group that acts as a class. They reproduce themselves hereditarily through 
educational qualifications they act collectively they have a high degree of of ideological and and political unity um and, and they transfer wealth as well and yeah and they are defined by a specific relationship to production as well they're not self-employed they're not managers of small businesses but they supervise the labor of others so i mean i think it's i think there is there is a long I, I sort of sometimes think oh yeah pmc and uh, petty bourgeoisie and manager labor class they all mean the same thing but actually you know this is an important question within class analysis who exactly we're talking about how are they you know how are they defined and and how do they reproduce themselves um and he's quite clear it's about educational credentials and those are passed down from from parents and they give access to status within and and good good jobs and less clearly to wealth but other sources of social power more more directly one of the one of the great parts of the book i think is just how um you know there's so is he just does he puts it through with with effective kind of mobilization of facts um without being too heavy on it and it works really well um the other thing which I appreciated about the book is um, one of the things I appreciated about it was his um, ruthless critique, I thought, of populism. So despite his disdain for the managerial overclass, as he puts it, um, their globalist pretensions and all of their kind of general um, haughtiness and uh, kind of um, political conceit, he makes very few concessions, I thought, to populism. So though his sympathies, um, you know, it would... Uh, it, one might expect his sympathies to lie with the populists. He's remarkably, um, remarkably critical of them. And I wanted to talk a bit about that because I like the fact that he is, um, that he criticizes both ends of the political spectrum that he identifies at least. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about his critique of populism. Yeah. I mean, he, he starts off by just to kind of link it to the managerial overclass. He starts off by recognizing and detailing something which we all experienced, how the managerial overclass demonizes populist voters or, or has done one of the most kind of, uh, tell, or, or to me at least, having been on the receiving end of this, one of the most memorable aspects of the, um, not that I would classify myself as a populist voter, but, you know, people who 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 have been in certain p- political positions in the past few years get called Nazis or Russian agents. Um, and the... Um, unhingedness with which this has happened you know we talk about neoliberal order breakdown syndrome um there's kind of a parallel there in this in this book where he's he just he notes how anti-populist the managerial overclass are um and so you kind of expect well he's going to go into sort of being um pro-populist but in fact he he he's not and i think it yeah i think it 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 speaks to the um the sophistication of of the project he's trying to develop even though ultimately i don't agree with it that he 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 calls it the populist counter-revolution from below and he i think correctly identifies that populism is a symptom the issue is not the issue as he puts it powers the issue um and so populism is a response to the disempowerment caused by neoliberalism but he sees it as not being able to address that root cause i think ironically he doesn't actually address the root cause either but i think that's an important critique it's a response to a disempowerment but that doesn't itself empower working class people alex yeah i think that's one of the stronger bits in the book um is his you know anti-populism and specifically the way that he is critical of demagoguery for 
Is it demagoguery or demagoguery? Demagoguery. Demagoguery. Too hard. Hegemony. That's why it's hegemony. I realize that I say demagogic. Actually, it's not a word I say very often. Demagogic? Are we doing hard Gs? Is that hard G? Demagoguery. Demagogic. Lasagna. Just remember, always hard G. Okay. Um, Real G's move in silence. But that demagogues are not truly able to represent the people. I mean, they're opportunists and interlopers who are never able to capture the whole people, which I think is a very important critique of populism and its pretensions to speak for the people as a whole against a an elite, right? Um, it ignores divisions within the people um, and it, it ignores it's specifically political divisions which need to be fought out. Um, and so I, he he says no single charismatic individual or party can substitute for institutionalized representation of a pluralistic society in all variety. So I don't share his pluralism and I don't uh, share his skepticism about the ability to come to to, to the formation of a general will in some sense or popular will. But at the same time, I think the, the populist answer is always to incarnate the people in the form of one person or one party, um, which is, uh, which is problematic because it's not genuinely representative and it's not representative because it doesn't allow for inter intermediaries, right? Um, it doesn't allow for party cadres even, or, um, representatives and party meetings and all the rest of it. So yeah. I think that's a good is about, His claim is about uh, mediating institutions, the need for kind of this dense infrastructure of, well, we'll talk a bit about his solutions, but I mean, I think that's exactly his point. He, uh, I suppose he, do, he sees, he sees the idea of this kind of network of, um, of integrating institutions of small kind of representative institutions. And they're all the kind of the, that kind of cross-cutting lattice work of social and political connection. He sees that as antithetical to the idea of a integrated political hmm. will. He sees the two so, things as opposed. So I, can I just, so I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the, for this discussion. And like, I think in some ways I sort of know the, institutional if you will critique of populism like lack of internal democracy in the brexit party for example but i feel like there's there's something else and i'm probably going to make a mess of this because i haven't i should have prepared it a bit more but that the 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 populist political project doesn't put authority as central to politics you know the kind of the political um intervention is always denouncing parties as elitist or corrupt but in fact, you know, to really, to really make good on that that uh, aspiration or that kind of um, initial starting point, that root cause of the disempowerment of the working class, to really make good on that, you would need to have authority essential to your political project. And I don't know if you can have, and I don't mean authoritarian populism. I mean a a, a kind of the way that it's it's related to his his misunderstanding i think of sovereignty like the way that you generate political power is not through having rules it's through you know mass participation um but anyway i don't know if i've, yeah. I've quite nailed that but i just think there's something there that he that he sort of misses he sees, he and sees that's general... tied to why his he goes for democratic pluralism and why i don't think that would work either i think he sees what he calls democratic pluralism like i say he sees it as um 
the opposite of general will rather than is the way in which general will is constructed, I think. Um, but we'll come a bit more to what he means by democratic pluralism. Because just just one, one, one thing about that. I mean, I, I agree he confuses um, populism with majoritarianism or sees them as identical and rejects them both. Um, but one in his critique of majoritarianism, um, again, this is a leap that he makes, which I think is unfounded, but he associates majoritarianism with Heron Volk democracy, right? Yeah. Which is a critique of what, for example, the United States was at its early days where uh, it's democracy, but only for white people, right? Um, but in his description of that, in his, his, yeah, one of the ways he tries to characterize Heron Volk democracy is saying, for example, Donald Trump's defiant use of Merry Christmas instead of the more inclusive Happy Holidays. <laughs> just think like that's that's the example of Folk democracy that you have to bring to the table. Like there's a lot worse than, than saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Um, or the, the, the Salvini's order that public buildings in Italy display Catholic crucifixes, another example. I'm like, well, look, I don't agree with mm. displaying crucifixes, but that's not exactly Folk democracy. Uh, it's just kind of culture wars throth. His about, yeah, so he sees he yeah, it's interesting actually, and I suppose this is something I didn't pick up reading it um previously, is that he does see democracy and majoritarianism as dangerously kind of um homogenizing forces. I like the fact that populism he identifies populism with kind of and this is I think one of the strongest parts of the book. So in contrast to all the kind of the left liberals who see uh, the Nazi, you know, the branchard menace and the prospect of collapsing into fascist dictatorship, he sees the problem as um as a Latin American kind of future. One might even call it Brazilianization. Where uh, don't, we're going you, to you be, think you're being clever there, but Michael Lind wrote about Brazilianization. In back in 1995, really? So, Did he? Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for informing me. Not in those terms, but he, I mean, he he was he's one of those people who was talking about that kind of. Early yeah, on. so he got there first, didn't he? He beat everyone else to it. Anyway, well, yes. So I, he's I talking about the future of a Alex. This isn't all about you. We're talking about Michael Lind here, not about. No, you. we're talking about me because you gestured at me when you. I said don't know. I didn't gesture at you at all. Now you're getting paranoid. You see, you spend too much time on social media. Um. Paranization, you know, or another way to, I suppose, to describe it is paranization. So that you get this, um, the constant, um, these constant battles between the managerial overclass and the populist kind of insurrections. And the dystopian image isn't the brown shirts on the march, but rather the kind of the, um, uh, you know, the pitchfork kind of rebellion outside of the, um, the gated community. And that's our future is being stuck between kind of these um, rabble-rousing insurrections and the um, the managerial overclass um, cosseted in their small kind of um, secure urban hubs. So I wanted, we wanted to talk a bit about also about neoliberal reform and also so how, because Lind does to his credit, he talks about efforts to kind of reform this system and also his criticisms of democratic socialism. So why he brushes democratic socialism or so, socialism. So he's, you know, he identifies socialism as offering both authoritarian and democratic um, versions in his view anyway, um, criticizes democratic socialism. Um, and he rather um, in, in favor of his democratic pluralism. So what is, how convincing are his criticisms of these uh, telezikes? 
Well, I mean, I think he is quite sharp. I thought this was the sharpest part of the book, actually, um, in criticizing neoliberal solutions to its own problems, right? Um, and the solutions that he terms neoliberal aren't ones that you'd necessarily expect. So one is quite obvious, which is education or upskilling, right? That obviously we can dismiss as um, a nonsense neoliberal attempt to deal with the problems in labor markets uh, of unemployment, chronic unemployment, as if uh, you know everybody learning to code suddenly resolves these problems. But that's an easy, I think that's that's like low-hanging fruit in terms of a, a critique. But he also criticizes the anti-monopoly lot who want to break up big companies and uh, create small businesses, which famously, you know, pay worse, um, are often worse bosses and so on. So, um, and you could add, you know, more difficult to unionize as well. So that's that, that's easily enough dealt with. I think the other thing that he was very good in is critiquing redistribution. And interestingly, you know, redistribution is often counterposed to uh, neoliberalism or, you know, whatever, like the, the kind of bad ways that things are, you know, mean capitalist and we need redistribution instead. Um, but he is useful in criticizing redistribution, especially in the forms of cash transfers and UBI and sees them as a new opiate of the managers, actually, which I think was quite neat. Um, and it absolutely is. Uh, it's a way of solving the problems of the market with more market, i.e. Um, giving these cash transfers to allow people out into the market to uh, act as you know investors if they want or yeah. effectively rentiers or layabouts. And I thought that was yeah. quite good. Yeah, so I mean, I think, I think the, the way that he, he categorizes the different sorts of neoliberal reforms as forms of palliative liberalism, they all try to escape from the worker so you can have education. It, it liberates the worker um, through social mobility into the into a professional UBI, it transforms working class people into investors. Um, and then working class people are transformed into small business owners um, or petty bourgeoisie um, through the anti-monopolyism stuff. So it's like you get it, you get away from being a worker. That's why he calls it the workless paradise in each, in each uh, case. And I thought that's a very astute point. What about his criticisms of democratic socialism? Um, why does he not Put it, why does he not think it's a viable solution to the problems he identifies? I mean, the way that he describes, um, you, you'd think reading the book that he would be favorable to it, but he, the reason he's unfavorable to it is just one, a mixed economy is better than uh, one led by the state. And his description or his understanding of democratic socialism is effectively of state socialism, right? He obviously doesn't see it as revolutionary socialism, which he dismisses as all Stalinism effectively. Um, but he sees democratic socialism as, as if, I mean, I, I'm not sure if we can think of a specific regime that he would if associate I, if with. If I'm recalling but... correctly there, I mean, he's sharper than that because he says it would simply recreate the problem. You would still have a technocratic overclass, yeah, managerial yeah. overclass that would um, effectively monopolize politics and influence. That's right. I mean, that, and I think that's a fair critique. Um, but I guess it depends what your understanding of democratic socialism is. I think lots of people who would use that term yeah. wouldn't agree with that. They would be conception. wrong. I mean, I think, you know, like I think in a way it's a very sharp critique of a lot of what passes as um, left wing politics at the moment. That it's um, the a lot of people who call themselves democratic socialists, I think, are indeed kind of um, uh, aspirant. Neither democratic nor socialist. 
Um, that would be true as well. But even even that notwithstanding, I think, you know, they aspire to be the elite of a new kind of society and they aspire to um, be, you know, the managerial and technocratic elite of that society that yeah. would be kind of reshaped in their favor. And so he doesn't go this far, but I would I think I'd push it this far as it's another, you know, it is effectively um another version of the same of the same thing in um not, not not least because i think that would that a lot of those visions involve a redistribution of wealth but not actually of power right yes, so exactly. those visions are are quite top down and so he's right to criticize that but of course he dismisses or doesn't even engage with any possibility of any bottom-up socialism for, for lack of a better way to put it or revolutionary socialism um, so we've so. we've been shadowing we've or not shadowing but we've kind of been circling around his own solutions um, and we've already talked about it. So his own solution to class war is democratic pluralism. Um, and I th think it's useful to break this down a bit. Um, so what are the basic features of this democratic pluralism that he offers as a solution to our problems? Yeah. So, I mean, the, um, the, the political project that he's he's engaged in is a, achieving a genuine class peace in the democracies of the West. Um, and that's his, you know, that's his stated aim. And, you, you know, you might or might not agree with that but he, he so what he is attempting to build then is a sort of countervailing power for the working class as he puts it or social checks and balances um and so what does this actually look like i my critique would be that this is essentially a form of participatory neoliberalism that it doesn't give working class power to to, to people instead as he, as he describes it, substantial areas of policy should be delegated to rulemaking institutions, which must represent particular portions of the community, like organized labor and business in wage setting, sectoral bodies or representatives of religious and secular creeds in bodies charged with oversight of education and the media. So he's what he's looking to do is essentially, I guess, disaggregate. Why is it liberal? I mean, why is I, it, I don't know, why isn't it like a Rhenish kind of vision of capitalism or something like that? Why are you liberal? I will I will continue what I was saying um, and then get to that point. Um, so he has these communitarian ideas, I would say, around sort of churches, community groups, etc., um, and sees I mean sees the the way that society is divided then as the guild in the economic sphere, the ward in the political context. So that's fifty to two hundred thousand people, and then the congregation in the cultural um, the cultural sphere. And I think the reason why you know, may, maybe saying it's neoliberal is slightly unfair, but I think there's an important point that this retreat from the national, from a national project, he, because he recognises previously that this, one of the things that neoliberalism does is, uh, particularly at the nation state level, insulate economic decisions from political power. But he is looking, I think, to, to kind of perform a, a kind of similar move where, the, the power that's that's constructed is not at a national level. It is not representing the nation as a whole. And so therefore, I don't think it it would have that ability to to kind of to genuinely, you know, give give power to to society. And yeah. so you'd end up with a sort of reproduction of the, the economic um, status quo. And that's related to this no, general uh, so, will. So, so no. So let me tell you I, the reason he's an, it's anti-majoritarian. Sure. But it's not neoliberal and it's not neoliberal because the core of the argument I have lots of critiques about the politics and the culture of it, but the economics is always the center of anything. So that's that's where we should start with this. And that's and that is his corporatism. That's, that's economism. It's not. I mean, it's 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 basically not because production is is where it all starts. So that's where we should start. And his solution to that is uh, corporatism or this tripartite um, negotiation between government, uh, business, and 
labor. And that his, his vision there is really return to uh, the kind of social democratic arrangement of, um, you know, of the post-war period. Um, though my thing about this is, is that that was at a period in which unions were strong and obviously he would like to return to a, a, a period of higher union density. But that was a period where, um, you know, labor had been very strong. And then you had the Second World War and that disaster and the inclusion thereafter in a sort of grand compromise, right, between labor and capital. What he's proposing actually sounds a lot more like Latin American populism, which is to say a sort of elite-led, top-down inclusion of the masses through unions. And, you know, those Latin Latin American populists often involved tutelized unions, so unions which were completely controlled by by the state in a top-down fashion. Um, And I don't see Lin's vision being terribly different from that, in part because there's no room for autonomy within these organizations. So he doesn't want strikes happening. He wants class peace and he wants collective bargaining at a high level. And he recognizes that all these, all these, hang on, all these, hang on, let me just finish this point, that all these institutions will still have elites. So they'll still have, you know, bureaucratic union leaders or whatever. Um, but it's, they, they're due bargaining and therefore the working class has a higher standard of living, but no real autonomy. I kind of disagree with bits of um, what both of you have said. So, I mean, I, I, I think Alex is right in saying it is the most nostalgic part of the book, particularly his kind of fondness for ward bosses. And I mean, I was talking about this um, with some friends and, you know, it seems like he wants, you know, bring back Jimmy Hoffa, essentially his, um, his kind of nostalgia for these kind of um, seedy, shady kind of rough at the edges characters who um, lead large kind of organizations, cut deals in back rooms, but through these kind of backroom shady deals, which might be kind of, um, you know, particularly unpleasant to academic overclass types, nonetheless, this is how, you know, society functions. So he, you know, that's his kind of vision, ward bosses and the old union kind of, the old union kind of um, roughnecks. Um, and so, and that seems to me like that in that sense, it's, um, it's the, it is that it's most nostalgic and the congregation model of culture, I think as well, the, um, you know, returning to a kind of a more pluralized vision of the 1950s. So it's not all just kind of um, Protestant, but also, you know, Hispanic Catholics, even, even mentions Wiccans, I suppose, in trying to be kind of uh, generous, um, you know, there should be kind of other models of faith communities. And I found it all a bit kind of sad and pathetic, to be honest. But I don't think I don't. He's not like he's not he's not saying that strikes would be illegal or something under his. Uh, no, under- no, no. But but they would be preempted by the fact that you have collective bargaining. Right. And this is all decided at a higher level. You don't even have you don't have business. You don't have unions uh, at, an, at an enterprise level. You have sectoral unions who negotiate. Yeah, but he's uh, not. With, but with he's not. I mean, but by def, I mean, you know, he's not um, he doesn't see or doesn't think that a revolutionary reconstitution of society is needed so i mean why would he no why no, would but, he no but he doesn't but i think but you, think you can have you I, can support unionism which which isn't uh, uh, you can support it on a syndicalist basis not a revolutionary one either right um and the I point think, is that there's very yeah. little autonomy which i think is a point that george was making so my i guess my so when he says that he wants to achieve a genuine class peace i mean i think that that means that the political horizon of what he's trying to achieve is not a revolutionary reconstitution of society. So I think it's like, does it work on its own on its own terms? What he suggests, does it correspond to the yeah. to the to the diagnosis? And that is the point that I would say no. And I meant to say because... 
because of that participatory technocracy point that I fudged earlier, which is it's been a long day, which is that it's not I think power, political power is about binding decisions and about organized, you know, organized classes and they come together or they don't or whatever. And I think his model is very different. And he's sort of saying, well, what we can do is a lot of listening, a lot of dialogue, a lot of bargaining. I might be reading too much into this, essentially, and, you know, reading some some external things into it. But that's the the kind of he talks about assigning decision making to independent agencies overseen by multi-member commissions, at least some of whose members might have working class constituents and affiliations. It's not. Um, that's not a model to empower people. It's a model to to kind of to make a p- political authority very diffuse and accountability very difficult to yeah. trace. And I don't. I think that's that's ultimately the the um, where the logic yeah, of the diagnosis doesn't come. I, I don't know. If it's, I don't know if it's not accountable, but I mean the pluralistic model, and I think this is very clear in the politics and the culture aspect of it uh, is is a kind of, you know, Burkean conservative small platoons, right? Um, and you see it with, with culture, right? So not exactly. Hang on, hang on. Let me just, right. let, let, no, let me Alex, just, but it's not on. because, right. Because he, I think it's, it's a larger scale thing. So it's large unions kind of, you know, um, it's large kind of groups um, which have their commissions and their committees and their meetings, and they all kind of sit around the table. They cut deals for their constituents, and everyone kind of benefits. But I don't think it's a small; it's not a small kind of vision. It's a, it is for a kind of large country like the US and a, a huge, but you the know, small with platoons, millions of the, people. But you can have many small platoons, right, organized into larger entities. I mean, that's the that is the conservative no, I, vision. Sure, but I don't think it's. I just don't think it is. Uh, it's not a Birkin. Okay, well, okay, can I can I just make one point uh, because I, what I was leading to is sure. the, the point about culture, and here uh, he replaces one conformity with another, and I mean here, you know, he's a conservative. I guess that's what you what you'd expect, but that's where the vision is, I guess, most obviously kind of repellent because he talks about. Look, I understand that he would hate liberal hegemony over contemporary culture, which in fact is actually very conformist despite its pretensions at tolerance. Right? I think we all agree with that. Um, in response to that, he would replace that with effectively like church censors to manage culture. He talks about, um, you know, the, these uh, groups rep- representative of creeds and also of like secular groups um, in bodies overseeing education and media. Yeah. So, you know, that's not just that's, church. I mean, he so he tries to be, churches, kind of, he tries to be inclusive know, and whatever. Inclusive, but, yes. So that the Wiccans would get to kind of decide what gets taught, as well as the Muslims, as well as the Christians, and everyone. By the end, you know, by the end, you'd be teaching students absolutely nothing. And I it, think it's a much is, less secular vision than even the U.S. today, which is insufficiently secular, probably. So I think it, you know, to that extent, it is a kind of. Um, I think it is kind of a creepy vision of culture, despite his kind of, um, you know, his kind of gestures towards some inclusive and pluralistic vision of different faith communities, all kind of having having a say. Um, but I guess this brings us the question of how far his solution matches his problem brings us to the final point I wanted to mention, which was the role of geopolitical rivalry. Um, so he talks about, you know, he sets up his model as Cold War versus Class War to explain how we got here. But he doesn't really talk about the fact that the whole his, you know, despite the fact he calls it Cold War, the fact that it was all conditioned by um, geopolitical contestation. So it emerges out of a period of tremendous kind of um, uh, geopolitical upheaval, all the slaughter and um, devastation of the Second World War. And the 
world which he kind of um, looks back to fondly between the 1940s and the 1970s, roughly, is a world that was predicated on this enormously kind of draining, um, dangerous and oppressive um, confrontation with the with the Soviet Union. But he doesn't really talk about it. He doesn't really talk about it as a condition of the of the world of that world, and he doesn't think about whether or not it's needed to motivate his um, the world that he wants to see, the kind of the aftermath. As far as I can recall, I mean, he doesn't so, really talk about it. So, so can, it I, can I just me... quote from this because I think it it, it addresses that directly sure. in the know, end. Phil, you're about to be. No, no, I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to own Phil. I'm He's just... one of these people. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Go on. No, I'm see not trying to. Like me. in the epilogue, and I, I might have read a different edition to to you. I don't know because it anyway. No, no, it's on, very, that's a very polite way to. I might have uh, read a different edition to you. Let, let me let me read this out, okay? Yeah, because he talks. He's talking about effectively, and this is in my terms, disciplining elites and how do you discipline elites. Fear of the ruled is a weak motive. Popular revolts seldom turn into revolutions. So basically, uh, working class power is not going to discipline elites. Fear of national defeat and war is more likely to compel elites to undertake reforms than fear of uprisings from below. And so the way that elites are going to be disciplined effectively is uh, in the context of renewed great power competition. So I think that's quite explicit that to return to the Cold War uh, supposed social peace that obtained with high living standards for the working class, lack of a and no patronizing liberal elite, uh, managerial elite telling people how to behave. Uh, you need to have return to the Cold War, and and today I suppose that means conflict with China. Because I, I read the same edition as you, Alex. So I, I also had an epilogue in, which was actually really really good because he basically says like, what's going to happen next. And I think I think this is relevant. He says it's only necessary for Western managerial elites to abandon technocratically and liberalism for a better governing philosophy, um, for a different governing philosophy, preferably one that is better, like a new democratic pluralism, rather than one that is as bad or, or worse. So he actually, I think you don't need that geopolitical rivalry, in his opinion. Instead, in fact, the you have, and that's on page 166 of my edition, at least, um, and so he doesn't, I don't think he says that you need that geopolitical threat to to kind of empower um, one part of society. Rather, the dominant part of society can slip away almost by choice from its current um, contradictory and doomed philosophy. And I thought that was a really um, sort of extremely thought-provoking point and one that, you know, fair play to him for following through the analysis and saying that if this if this overclass is so dominant um, as he sort of traces it out, then the mechanism through which it can give up that power um, it could be could be a kind of um, a voluntary one if there no, is something I, that, in it for it, them. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just that's not what he he says because he's quite explicit here that um, what would motivate the managerial overclass to abandon technocratic liberalism? The answer is fear. And then it goes on uh, to say what I had just recently quoted, saying that fear from revolution is probably not that strong because revolutions don't, don't never happen, basically. Um, and so fear of defeat and national war is more likely to compel them. If today's technocratic neoliberalism is succeeded in the future by a new democratic pluralism, i.e. what he wants, it is likely to be in the context of a renewed great power competition. So that's what's going to strike fear into the hearts of elites and then maybe lead them to voluntarily change course, but they need that element of fear of threat. 
So it's good you brought it up, Alex, because I had forgotten about it and the epilogue is very good. I suppose, though, I, my point, I think, would still stand is only because precisely because it kind of comes in at the end. Right. I mean, it's not really built in from the get go. He doesn't no. he doesn't talk about geopolitics as a kind of um, permissive condition or a kind of an enabling condition of the of the kind of political systems that he talks about. So he doesn't, you know, for instance, I mean, um, the fact, how important is it that um, the neoliberalism is an era in which the geopolitical rivalry kind of abates, you know, yeah. I mean, is that a, is that a precondition of, uh, of technocratic neoliberalism that you don't have geopolitical rivalry or is it well, the other way around? He, he which talks, is cause and which is effect. And those yeah, kind he, of things he, I think need to be integrated into the kind of analysis he wants to offer. Yeah, I mean, he does. So he, it's, it's interesting in the, the epilogue, he talks about geopolitical competition rather than rivalry or cold or war, although he does mention those things. And he talks previously about um, global labor arbitrage, and that's important for what he'd fit. So he, I think it is almost then that it's premised on a, on a sort of um, a, a weakish threat from, from China. So you can have a, you can have still the, the cheap production, which underlies the, um, some aspects of the neoliberal revolution from above, but it's sort of worrying um, managerial overclass enough to, to to effectuate a transition. I mean, that that would be my sort of, he's maybe trying to, to, to say there's that's the middle line. Um, no, but that I, I, that, I think that's right. He's not saying know. you need war, but that you need geopolitical rivalry and you need the threat of China to... I think the, I mean, the other element which he, I mean, the reason that fear of defeat in war matters is only as a result of the experience of the First World War. Um, and it's, you know, that, oh, well, I mean, earlier wars too, but principally in the 20th century, at least, um, the fact that um, defeat in war led to enormous social upheaval and to revolution. Um, and so, you know, there is the, uh, the, those are the, that's the way it connects to you know, fear of below and fear of defeat are connected in a way that they weren't um, previously. You know, that's something really that only begins in the late 19th century, um, perhaps, you know, with the Paris Commune and um, subsequent wars. Um, so his attempt to kind of cleave apart um, the geopolitics from the domestic kind of uh, class pressures, I think, again, is perhaps a bit too easy. But anyway, I think even the discussion has been useful and it's reaffirmed to me just how, um, what a good book it is, I think. So... Uh, notwithstanding Alex's criticisms, I would say go out and buy your copy if you haven't already. But it, it, does it get two thumbs up? It gets two thumbs up from me. Yeah, one in each hole. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Nostrils. Alex. Nostrils. Yeah. <laughs> that's a real, yeah. That's a really managerial kind of overclass thing to say. That kind of, um, I don't know. I mean, what what you really should vulgar, do? The vulgar. Yes, unlike unlike the conservative religious working class who uh, <laughs> just want you know warm apple pie. No, what you should do is go and go and get go and get a few copies of this book. Meet up with your your, your sort of PMC mates. Get some craft beers and have a good <laughs> have a good discussion. Some listeners might might recognise themselves in that description, as All I right. recognise myself. Okay, Indeed. very good. All right. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, send us your thoughts and questions. And uh, we'll be back with another one of these. In a month, we'll be uh, updating our reading list. So we'll be in touch. Uh, all right. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.